Hello, and welcome back to Floor 9. As ever, I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today I'm joined by the lab team to talk all things CES, from the inspired and insightful to the wacky and wonderful. Joining me, as always, is Adam Simon. Adam, hello. Hello. As a grizzled CES veteran, what was your overall impression of the 2024 Consumer Electronics Show? Did it compare to years past? Did it feel as heavily attended? Give me the lowdown. Yeah, I definitely just feel like I came out of the wilderness after a week <laughs> in the Las Vegas desert. This CES, I think we're still seeing CES evolve in the post-pandemic era. This show was different than last year, and I expect that next year is going to continue to evolve in new and interesting ways. I think that attendance is still a little down from pre-pandemic, but still growing each year. There were times when it felt a little less crowded, but I think that varied greatly depending on what part of the show you were in and what time of day it was. As the crowds sort of tend to follow a little bit of a predictable pattern. I think going into CES, we on the lab team all suspected that we were going to be constantly shooting down allegations of everything being powered by AI, right? Just based on how 2023 played out, we were expecting AI to show up in every booth, uh, sort of like when Alexa and Google Home launched, how you saw Alexa and Hey Google integrated into pretty much any product where it could possibly make sense. We sort of expected the same thing with AI this year. And interestingly, there were a couple of egregious uses of the term artificial intelligence, as you might expect, but it wasn't too bad. There were not too many booths that were claiming AI capabilities that didn't have at least some morsel of, of truth mm -hmm. or reason inside of them. Most of the AI was concentrated to the Eureka Park and startup things, but you mentioned some of those egregious uses or implementations of AI. Do you have an example for our listeners of one of the worst AI implementations you saw on the show floor? Yeah, I think my favorite one is the first AI-powered office chair uh, that claims to be able to detect your posture and automatically adjust itself for you, which, okay, maybe <laughs> if it works really well, that is okay. But I also, it's just like, I don't want to be dealing with connecting my chair to Wi-Fi. That's a bridge too far, even for me. And I love connected devices, but I don't know. <laughs> So besides AI, which was kind of uh, not as prominent as we thought it was going into the show, were there any major trends that you noticed after the many miles of touring? And as an aside, how many miles did you get in this year? Oh, that's a great question. I haven't tallied all of my miles. I know from one day it was over eight miles of walking, which mm. seems like a lot, but I can tell you from past CESs, my record is over 18 miles in one day. So uh, still coming in a little light compared to the 2017-2018 yeah. era of CES. But in terms of some of the other trends, I think, you know, CES traditionally was a television trade show and a home theater trade show. Um, so there's, there's always lots of TV tech that is unveiled at CES. This year, both LG and Samsung were showing off transparent OLED televisions, which I think are really interesting. Um, they it, it sounds like a gimmick, but they look amazing in person. They're not totally transparent. They're a little more translucent. You can sort of tell that there's something there, but the effects that they're capable of doing, they, it really like they've showed off making it look like a fish tank when you are not watching TV. Things like that are very cool, but I actually think there's even more applications outside of the home for retail environments. There was a mm. demo in one of the booths that just had these displays in front of a case at a bakery that was labeling the different desserts and including their prices. So you could sort of update that, you know, manually just by typing something into a connected computer and making it really easy and also like an amazing display for consumers who are there in your shop. They're very expensive right now. So I don't think you're about to see them sure. at your corner 
coffee shop. But I think that if we look a few years into the future, um, this is exciting technology that enables some different use cases for displays than we've seen in the past. Yeah, and I think we'll come on to it a little bit later in the podcast when we talk about mobility, how this can be integrated to in-car entertainment systems or potentially using augmented reality to enhance our environment as we kind of drive down the street or an autonomous vehicle actually drives for us. But we'll come on to that in a little bit. So I want to ask you a little bit about the at-home economy, which is one of our future of presentations at CES 2024. Now, I know matter was a really big theme in 2023. Was interoperability a continued trend in 2024? Was it something that we saw on the show floor? Yeah, definitely. I definitely think that matter is still sort of the hot topic among Mm -hmm. um, IoT and smart home devices at CES. If you've been following along with matter, you'd know that 2023, even though it did launch last year, it was a little bit of a rocky year, a rocky launch for matter. Mm -hmm. We're slowly moving in the right direction. Matter 1.2 was announced, which is improving the way that the different sort of matter networks that have popped up in your connected home are going to be able to, to communicate and eventually merge into one network. So you're not don't have devices sort of siloed onto their own networks, which will be a a big help. And they also are rolling in new types of devices, um, such as robot vacuums getting added into the spec. So matter is, you know, slowly, steadily making progress. I think it was a little rockier than I expected of a rollout. But also, this was always going to take a few years to really gain traction in the market. I think the other interesting interoperability standards that were announced, there's actually a lot of focus on things beyond matter. Mm. There was a new standard for digital home keys for accessing your home, a new standard for digital car keys for accessing your car that are really seeing industries coalesce around realizing that we need standards for these things. (laughs) As much as early adopters and innovators sort of have to sometimes push the limits, at the end of the day, to really make them work, we we want standards that work across all of our our devices so that all the, the manufacturers can build to one spec and not have to worry about if you have an iOS device or an Android device or some third party device. And then the lastly, the last interoperable thing that I wanted to mention, which I think is really important for the future and very cool, is a new um, standard for energy management interoperability. And what Mm. this basically means is that your appliances and things that use a lot of power, like your your TV and your EV chargers, that those will be able to soon communicate with each other to negotiate who needs power when and to optimize for when you might be able to to power exclusively off of solar, for example, or renewable energy um, if you have solar panels on your house and to negotiate for uh, so that they're charging things during times that the grid is in less demand. So I think this is obviously an important step, but I do think it's it's interesting to think that in you know five years or so, we might be in a place where all of our devices are talking to each other, not just about like the user-facing functions, but mm-hmm. also how they use energy, which is, I think is going to be really important in the future. Yeah. So anyone who has to like carefully manage plugging in their blow dryer and turning off their oven and making sure they don't blow a fuse in their rickety old apartment in NYC, this should hopefully go a long way to solving those problems. And while cohesion and standards are important, let's talk about like the expression of the at-home economy. Are there more tools coming to people's homes to allow them to kind of distinguish their spaces beyond that cookie cutter approach we see in HGTV? 
Yeah, I think we saw there's always a lot of interesting sort of connected devices for decorating. We had this whole idea of trends in home decor really sort of are driven by things like HGTV these days. We've seen an increasing desire for consumers to have some kind of living space that kind of adheres to whatever the popular aesthetic mm -hmm. is of the day. But then they also want to obviously be able to customize it in ways that express their personality a right. little bit more. So rather than painting everything bright colors or black or what have you, <laughs> and decorating in very specific styles, we're seeing an increasing rise in sort of digital devices that let you customize your decor and, and change it and then sort of change it based on your mood or time of day or the seasons. My favorite there was a new product from Twinkly, which is an old CES favorite of the lab. They were the ones who came up with these connected Christmas lights for your Christmas tree that let you customize the display using your the camera on your mobile phone. That functionality is available from a lot of brands now, but Twinkly were the ones who came up with it first. They have a new basically LED curtains that you hang on your wall and are dense enough with LEDs to let you actually show images on them. So in the demos, they were showing, again, a fish tank, like a giant goldfish displayed in LEDs on your wall. And I think it's very cool to see in person how it kind of disappears when they're turned off or, or during the day, but lets you get really expressive in the evenings. Or, you know, I think it's just taking to the next level what we've seen from companies like Nanoleaf that have really yeah. driven interesting digital decor that we see are very popular in YouTube videos and TikToks these days. Yeah, Nanoleaf, Govi, definitely a lot of players in that space that are allowing you not only to enhance and personalize your space, but also supplement your entertainment experience by syncing it with your television and whatever content you're ultimately consuming. From a personalization standpoint, one thing I do have to kind of tip my cap to is the nichification of the gadgets in the kitchen and the indoor smoker. I know that was a hot topic amongst us uh, labbies, especially especially Chad Stoller. I don't know if anyone got to try the brisket though. Did you, Adam? I did not eat the brisket. I was just fascinated by the fact that they they built a smoker and put a catalytic converter in it to <laughs> be able to keep it indoors. A fascinating concept, pricey gadget for sure. But I think if you're if you're into smoking and you live someplace where maybe you don't want to be outside at uh, freezing temperatures, that this is an interesting option for people who are into smoking as a hobby. I want to roll these last two trends from the at-home economy into one automation and sustainability. You kind of talked about all of our devices talking to each other and sharing the energy. I think that goes a long way in leading the sustainability conversation. But are we also seeing them have conversations from an automation standpoint? Is my fridge talking to my oven now? Is my wet mop talking to my vacuum? How are these things working together? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, that is really the ultimate promise of matter. And again, mm -hmm. I think it was a little incremental in terms of developments this year. The thing that I thought was the most interesting in terms of automation was, you know, every year, the creators of robot vacuums and mops are really trying to one up each other in terms of convenience <laughs> and like how close can we get these things to Rosie the robot from the Jetsons where mm. I mean they don't have personalities yet but how much can they cleaning can they do without any human intervention and mm -hmm. the big shift this year was really in docking stations that are hardwired into your plumbing system so mm. that the mops can get fresh water and also expel the dirty water from themselves and I was like it's getting very close to the, these things not needing any human intervention at all, which I think is, you know, a little scary in some respects, but I think also very cool. So shifting gears from the at-home economy to talk about how the point of care is ultimately shifting to be more at home as 
as opposed to those conventional care centers like hospitals. I had the pleasure of talking about the future of health and wellness at CES this year. Saw a lot of really interesting things on the show floor. Adam, before I kind of dive into some of the key findings or trends that I extrapolated from this year's show, I'm just curious to know, is there anything that stood out to you in this space? I mean, I think that uh, longtime friend of the lab and 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 uh, CES contributor Wythings uh, mm. was at CES with a new device. They're not every single year, but it's always exciting when they do have one. So I thought that the the Wythings BMO, which is really an evolution of their connected thermometer to include more heart and lung diagnostics, I thought that was a really interesting device. As uh, to your point, as we're seeing more and more care being brought into the home and designed to be used potentially by yourself, but also in concert with a doctor via telemedicine. We didn't even set this up beforehand, but you kind of played perfectly into my first trend, which is on-demand healthcare. I think if there is anything that I learned in my research for this presentation is that people want access to as much information about their body as often as possible. And, you know, products like the BMO from Wythings are enabling us to do so. I think there are a lot of other in-demand devices from the CES show floor that are enabling us to have that continuous care coverage without having to, you know, tell a conference with our doctor or have a home health aid necessarily help us. Some of the ones that stood out to me, we talked about your analysis last year, again, from a friend of the lab, why things. This year, we kind of saw that taken to the more grand scale from a company from the Samsung Accelerator. It's called Yellosis. And essentially what they're doing is they're taking that urinalysis system and integrating it into public restrooms to democratize access to healthcare information so that not only people who can afford this expensive device get pertinent readouts on their health data and could you know be instructed to see a doctor in more dire circumstances. So I think that a lot of those types of devices, you know, really enhancing the uh, amount of information we have access to was kind of the core takeaway from CES from a health and wellness standpoint, because it was unlocking that on-demand access to healthcare and, you know, different types of treatments and coverage. Yeah, I mean, we love to see it. Why Things is obviously, uh, as we said, a super reliable CES partner for us. They always bring something fun to the show. Um, what else are you seeing in this space that you think is going to be important in the next year or so? Yeah, something that I see that's really taking off is, you know, more augmented and virtual reality use cases in the health and wellness space. I think two years ago when we first came back to CES and we saw like the metaverse for doctors, we all kind of like laughed at that as being a reasonable use case for that kind of technology. But we are starting to see the ways that this tech is being integrated into healthcare systems become more evolved. One of my favorite examples is what Microsoft is doing with HoloLens. It's enabling doctors to not only get access to to a wealth of patient information like recent MRI and x-ray scans, but also interface with other clinicians and specialists at other points of care centers throughout the country. With virtual reality, we see companies like Asso VR who are using cinema quality virtual reality in order to expand training to people throughout the country so that the first time that they are gonna go into an operating room, they'll have rehearsed this hundreds of times before in a virtual environment. So those are two technologies that are really starting to get integrated into health and wellness that I think is super interesting. And then of course, you know, artificial intelligence is going to sneak its way into everything at CES, but there was definitely a healthy dose of it in the health and wellness sector. I think where we see it becoming most prominent is in drug discovery and also in uh, different research modules. All right, so beyond health and wellness, entertainment is obviously something that we have our eye on at CES. And stepping out from behind the production booth to join us on the mics once more is Richard Yao. Hello, my good friend. 
Hello, hello. As you're here to talk about the future of entertainment and media, I'd be remiss not to ask. You've now peered inside the sphere. Is the future already here? Yes and no. You know, it really depends on what you say, I think. When we went in on Tuesday for the private tour, mm-hmm. how fancy, we got like the best seat in the 300 section. And even though we were seeing some like, you know, demos with the house lights still up, it felt very immersive. And then when I went back on Saturday and sort of sat in like closer to the front in the lower 200, like my eyes didn't feel like it's as immersive. Mm. So I guess it really depends on where you where you sit. But overall, it is quite an impressive endeavor. Yeah, it's really not like anything we have seen before in terms of you know, the sort of immersive cinematic experience. But that's becoming more of the norm in entertainment and media today, right? These more next level immersive experiences. And I think MSG Sphere is a good representation of that. But are there any other kinds of technologies that are bringing us like one step closer to the real thing or being there in person or feeling like that either? Yeah, of course. In my CES session, I sort of talk about next level immersive entertainment. Right, for years we tried to get VR and AR sort of popularized and become more mainstream. And you know, they are getting there, especially with the upcoming release of Apple Vision Pro. But right now, we're sort of getting the sense of strapping a screen right in front of your face might not be for everyone. Mm. So, the, the solution is actually to make a giant screen <laughs> that you don't need to strap in front of your face, but actually, you can watch it with a lot of people together. Sort of like communal shared social experience mm. that actually enhance immersion and not breaking it. Right, so the sphere, as you mentioned, is a good example of that. Part of the immersion coming from experiencing something with hundreds of other people together. Right. And we're seeing other startups trying to do similar thing, Cosm, mm. which is a sort of a mixed reality dome immersive entertainment company. Mm. They have signed some content deals with both NBA and NHL to broadcast some of the live sporting events at their venue. See, that's where the money is, right? Always from the concession stand. But in terms of, you know, Cosm was it's not really a CES, but on the CES floor, we actually saw a bunch of, you know, interesting examples of this sort of immersive entertainment. Mm. Sony, for example, has this whole section in their booth talking about location-based immersive entertainment. Wow. And they actually bought one of the Ghostbusters same immersive experience to CES. It's not with VR, but it's very immersive. You know, wall-to-wall projection with a haptic floor that actually mm. responds to your steps. So we're going to see more and more the sort of like what we call the middle class of experience popping up to sort of supplement the market void between the at-home viewing experience, which is getting better and better, and Mm -hmm. then versus on the other end, the sort of premium in-person live events that are only going to become more and more expensive, (laughs) right? So there's this market for the middle class of immersive Mm. experience that we're seeing that getting fulfilled by things like the sphere, the cosm, you know, even the immersive theme park and, you know, that sort of thing.
Yeah, and I think that there were a, a couple of prime examples on the CES show floor. I think haptics was kind of a buzzword of the 2024 show. We saw rumble vests, rumble gloves, all different things that'll shake your body while you're watching some kind of content to make you feel closer to the experience. So I think that like devices like that and like the 4DX neck ring that you would wear that would blow hot air, cold air, little water droplets, like my 4DX experience when I saw Dune for the first time, no shortage of devices that are bringing people one step closer to whatever they're viewing. Yeah, totally. So speaking of 4DX, there was a moment in the postcard from the Earth, the immersive mm -hmm. movie in the sphere. There was a moment when we were visiting a like a orange orchid mm. where they actually pump like a citrusy smell Ooh. through their airbag system. So really adding, you know, not just the haptic, which, you know, the chair in the sphere does Rumble, mm -hmm. right? When when there's a giant elephant walking on the screen, wow. you, you cheer rumble with each step of the elephant. Mm. But the secret scene, like the scent, it's a whole different sense, you know, that's being engaged. I can't wait until we can add scents to our podcast. Minute Marker 23 has a nice cinnamon aroma. Make sure you tune in then. <laughs> But anyway, Richard, I want to take things from these extravagant venues and like bring it back into the living room and talk about the post-peak TV landscape. Are we bundling, unbundling, decycling? Just can you just please help my brain understand what is happening and how I can watch my favorite shows? Well, it's pretty easy. Basically, the streaming war is not over. Everybody realized it's too costly to find such a against Netflix and sort of everybody's figure out how to make the streaming model profitable again. And a lot of them first thing they turn to of course is advertising. Mm. So beyond just like the fast, you know, as supportive free streaming services, there's all, all the streaming services basically come out with their as supported tier. Amazon Prime is actually gonna turn on their as supported tier. Uh, next week. Mm -hmm. And through research, we actually found that most of the new sign-up actually prefer the ad-supported tier over the full price wow. and free level, right? We're, we're sort of getting a sort of sense of streaming fatigue. Mm -hmm. And so one way to counter that, of course, is also to remake this TV bundle in streaming. We see the Verizon offering $10 bundle of Max with Netflix both on the as supported tier trying to, you know, get people more locked into their own package. But, you know, there's always new stuff, new experiments trying to figure out what TV could look like in the streaming world mm. in terms of both in terms of the advertising format, we've been talking about interactive OTT format for a while, right? The, pe the Peacock with the Walmart shoppable ad example, that's the one we've been talking about for a while. But at CES, there's actually a new experiment from Roku. They actually announced linear broadcasting TV channel that only serves your music video. But unlike a regular linear channel, you can actually pause and or skip to the next video if you're not currently vibing with the one that's currently on. So it's kind of interesting to take a list for the interactive, always on channel, but put it on broadcast. And maybe that's where the sort of the future of those ad supported mm. fast channel will go. Yeah, that is a pretty novel model. Uh, I think another novel model that is probably on the tips of tongues of people and at least in the forefront of their brains is synthetic media. 
do you think we're approaching a place where the content that we're tuning into is not going to be made by humans? Is that still a distant dream? Was there technology on the show floor that makes this a possibility? What's the scoop here? Well, I don't think currently they're good enough to replace like human creator wholesale, mm. but they're definitely very powerful too to help with like the creative process, whether it's brainstorming or through ideation or just like iteration of different ideas. On the show floor, we did see a lot more like 3D asset creation. Right. So there's sort of text to 3D asset, sort of two being popping up. There's also a lot of like sort of virtual studios, like, you know, the one that use AI to create background. So then, you know, you can replace that with like on-location shoot, that's what I'm saying. And even some, you know, smaller startup, perhaps, you know, strive for resources. They're like the creative they use for the CS display is obviously generated by AI. So you can see that sort of democratizing nature of AI, especially mm -hmm. generative AI for creativity, slipping onto the show floor. But overall, I think, you know, CS obviously at the end, of the day, it's very hardware focused for the show. And AI is very much on the software side of innovation. So there's no like direct. Example for the show floor per se. What I would say though is keep an eye out how the fans are utilizing it, right? Mm. There is this whole phenomenon of fans, you know, using AI to uh, get their favorite pop star to cover a song by a different pop star. Earlier this year, we saw a AI generated cover of Miley Cyrus covering a Dua Lipa single ah. that actually got radio play in some European country. And of course, there's a huge copyright issue with AI that's definitely still under heavy debate. As CES, we actually saw NVIDIA teaming up with mm -hmm. Getty to use their Picasso AI model to train Getty's, you know, giant catalog of stock images so that they actually came out with this AI generated stock image too that, you know, brands can sort of buy into and using text to image to generate new stock image mm -hmm. that has no copyright issue. So that's kind of what we are with synthetic entertainment at the moment. Well, definitely interesting to hear. I think in the future, one day, it'll become quite the luxury to have human-made experiences. But I think it's still uh, at least 10 years out before we have to start worrying about that. Mm, maybe five. Who knows? <laughs> it's going pretty fast. Well, at least I can, I can guarantee everyone that Snow Knight is made by purely human. So, no, no, I on this podcast yet. <laughs> exactly. The ultimate human luxury made with love. And now joining me on the mics to talk about what the future of luxury looks like. I want to welcome the lab's Chelsea Freitas. Chelsea, welcome back to the show. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Hi. Was the lap in America's land to the lavish enough to get you in the new luxury mindset? Or is Las Vegas too outdated an example? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, a little glitz, a little glam, yeah. see the bright lights at night. Although I did spend most of my time on the show floor. So Ooh. I was on the hunt for the key luxury products that uh, are going to showcase some of the future. Can, can you give me some insight? What was your favorite? Oh, absolutely. 
So, I mean, I'll cut right to the chase of what my favorite example was. If there's one thing that really stood out to signify luxury, that was the Swarovski AI powered smart binoculars. What I love about this is like, yes, it's hardware. It's a niche tech device, but it really symbolizes a lot of the changes that we're seeing in the luxury category. It symbolizes the shift to, you know, more passion driven luxury. And then if we think about it in the context of travel as well, this more adventurous mindset. So I know like, let's thinking about travel specifically last year, you know, coming out of the pandemic over the last couple of years, last year, we really saw this push toward revenge travel and this push for the goat greatest of all trips. Right. And so now we're in this era where the discourse is like, how can we go above and beyond and make it even better? And when we're getting in that luxury consumer mindset, for them, they want something deeper. They want narrative. They want stories. So we are seeing the storification of travel experiences, more like curated travel itineraries. But then beyond that, to service those consumers, we're seeing lifestyleization and luxury category crossovers, which is my very long point to set up <laughs> this key device. So when I saw this on the show floor, my brain went a bunch of different directions. I was like, great, it's feeding that passion economy. It's sure. feeding you know, the bird watching community. But it's also feeding those more like immersive and exciting travel experiences mm. because with that built-in AI, these binoculars can actually identify, wait for it, wait for it, waiting. 9,000 different Ooh. birds, bugs, and mammals. So with that, you know, you're going to take these out, the luxury, you don't even have to think twice. <sighs> You can scan whatever, you know, the bird or the bug or the mammal that you're seeing. And then you can actually record videos, record content and share it with other Swarovski smart binocular users. So I just want to like come in with a heavy hitter. That was definitely the thing that stood out to me the most when it comes to catching the attention of the luxury audience. Definitely knocked it out of the park with that one. I can't wait to walk down the streets of New York City and have my binoculars out and telling me it's a human, 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 human with every single person that I see. But I see you're really into bird tech. But past years, you had the birdie, which was the bird watching camera. And now you have these binoculars that are used for bird detection. Clearly, you're an ornithological expert in want. Hey, I mean, I've spotted that snowy owl in Central Park myself. So I would consider myself at least engaged in the community on X. <laughs> I And I must ask, like, are we talking about Swarovski, the crystal thing that makes those little animals that you probably buy for your grandma every Christmas? That Swarovski? It is that Swarovski. Huh. So with these optic binoculars, they made a couple different iterations or versions of it. These, the AI powered ones were obviously the ones touted the most at CES mm -hmm. where it's appropriate. But I do think this is signaling a lot of crossovers, right? As the luxury category itself begins to grow and change and modernize, there's more of an opportunity for these types of lifestyle crossovers. We're going to see brands either try to win over new audience members. It really is a marketing and a positioning opportunity for brands to reach outside their lane to engage mm. new consumers and continue to grow. So with those new consumers, is like the luxury mindset starting earlier? Like are people getting fancy clothes, fancy bags? at 12, 13, 14, instead of making their first purchase at like 22 or something? You are right on the money. The <clears> data <throat> is showing that luxury consumers, these youngins, these Gen Zers <laughs> are making their purchases as early as age 15. Damn. That is two to three years sooner than their predecessors, than millennials ever engaged in the marketplace. So we're seeing the luxury audience younger, more diverse. And with that, you know, different taste, different mm. preference and different shopping behavior. 
So we're seeing younger consumers and then we're seeing these you know, traditional luxury brands have to pivot and really digitize mm. very quickly to create experiences for their modern consumer. I think primarily these purchases are happening so much younger because the category is more accessible. It's more digital. These consumers, like they can fully engage with the luxury category, whether that's mm. through social, through online communities, well before they're ever making a purchase. So I, I'm just curious with these younger consumers thinking about luxury, are they prioritizing digital spaces more than physical spaces? Were there any examples at CES that were like kind of representative of this? Yeah, you are right on the money with this. They love to engage in that digital space and become familiar with brands early. So, you know, we talk so much about digital environments and, you know, the metaverse was one of those big words of the last couple of years, but we are seeing more unique marketplaces that are really focused primarily on entertainment, but also creating a new space to engage with brands and experience brands. Mm. So one thing that we saw that made quite a splash over at the convention center was the Caliverse. And this is an entertainment platform, but it's also a digital marketplace. And that's the key point when it comes to luxury. It's a space where, you know, luxury brands are already testing there. They had a couple of beauty specific stores like Givenchy, mm. uh, Fresh Cosmetics as well. And consumers can browse and shop. And if they purchase that digital good in this marketplace, they then get the physical good shipped to them. Mm. So we're seeing a lot of experimentation like this. And younger audiences really eat this up. I think they really love the freedom of that boundless expression, right? They can test things without consequence. They feel like it's more authentic. And I even read a study. It was like a Roblox and Vogue business study that the ability to test things in digital spaces aids their mental health because mm. it allows them to more comfortably and authentically express themselves in the real world. So I think this mindset and this shift is going to carry with consumers as we see them really spearhead the next wave of luxury. Quick nod back to my health and wellness thing. We definitely saw a lot of mental health using augmented and virtual reality to put kids in spaces that they're more familiar with to make them more free to express how they feel and more comfortable to do so as well. So I definitely see that crossing over into some other categories as well. One thing I do want to talk about, though, is kind of this testing in these digital environments and being able to then bring these realizations into the real world. One thing that stood out to me on the show floor that was included in your expressive opulence section was that cola faucet. It looks like something that just came straight out of The Sims or some kind of video game. You want to talk about that and like what, how that exemplifies expressive opulence? Yeah, totally. This, this was a fun example, right? <laughs> so I had a key trend of expressive opulence. It's really driven by this shift toward more immersive and expressive technology mm -hmm. with more, you know, tech enabled emotional and immersive opportunities rising. It creates an opportunity to more deeply engage and stand out with luxury consumers. So what this is highlighting is really a shift from this more minimalistic mindset or mm -hmm. even, you know, known as quiet luxury to this more bold, engaging, and even haptic in some cases engagement. So it's not only purely aesthetics. There is like that deeper consumer engagement angle through tech, but it's definitely in Kohler's case driven primarily by design. Mm. So what I love about this is Kohler is always, you know, every year it's like uh, just this luxury spa, right? Walking through their space on the show floor. I wish I could just shower on the show floor. 
I mean, maybe next year. So <laughs> there it's, it's just like an epic setup. And what really stood out to me was this bright orange faucet. Listeners, Google it now, take a look at it. It was a collaboration between Kohler and SRA Industrial Design Studio. That's Dr. Samuel Ross. So what's great about this is it's Kohler really, you know, putting their stake in the ground that they can do more and they can continue to reinvent and create these more imaginative sculptural products that are going to serve this next iteration of the luxury consumer. It also tailors back to some of those um, home economy trends that we talked about as well. I think we're going to continue to see shifting aesthetics and preferences as people want to more vibrantly express themselves. Now, Chelsea, before I let you go, I want to linger like the cranberries for a moment on lavish longevity. Did I miss something on the show floor that will let me live to 150? Or are we talking about the products, systems, services that are good and good for us? I mean, I think maybe uh, there is a chance that we could all be centurions. Let's just leave it at that. We don't need to go down the whole uh, blood transfusion uh, (laughs) movement that's happening in some spaces. What I love is just this general shift in the wellness space toward highlighting longevity. Mm -hmm. There's a cultural discourse about this physical and mental resilience and thinking long-term. And I think we saw it come to life in many ways, whether it was, you know, stopping by AARP's like massive sweeping real estate of age tech, because there's a lot of investments there, or it's other pillars of longevity, things like on the sustainability and energy efficiency front. One that I want to call out is L'Oreal. I think we can give them a big round of applause for many things this year. Side note, they were the first beauty brand to ever take the keynote stage at CES. With that, they had a lot of big announcements. One of them being their air light hair dryer that promises a 31% reduction in energy usage Mm. because it's going to use infrared technology. So I love when we can incorporate sustainability into, you know, daily tasks, daily rituals, daily routines. And that is really helping build this more longevity mindset. And with that, I think, you know, we can talk about a lot of other wellness trends that bring this to life. I could sit over here and talk about sleep tech so much as well. Sleep tech has been a really key theme at CES the last few years, but this year we saw it get even more robust and Mm. even more specific, moving from, you know, just the basic analytics to actual optimizing and creating better sleep right there on the spot. And if you want to learn more about that, Chelsea will be putting together a sleep podcast in which she details all of her favorite takeaways on the beds from the CES show floor. Yes, I will talk um, much quieter and ASMR-like. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Chelsea, for all of your expertise when it comes to luxury. I know that if I need to find something cool, who I'll be hitting up. Awesome. All right. Next up, to discuss the state of play and the future of toys and games is Thomas Trudeau. Tom, what's up? You ready for some co-op, brother? Hey, Ryan. Let's do it, bud. Let's move into it. Uh, So can you just give me a state of play? What is going on in the fun economy, the fun industry today? Yeah, you know, Ryan, this is my first CES and there was so much to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. At times it was overwhelming. Attention is actually the overarching theme of what I wanted to explore. Interesting. I think many of us are trying to be more mindful about what we give our attention to, including the toys and games that we play. So Hmm. focus on four trends that are shaping our collective attention The first one is the rise of user-generated content within gaming. Number one, UGC and gaming, it's big business. There's 1.5 billion expected to be paid out to creators by platforms like 
Fortnite and Roblox in 2024. Damn. So when we think about the creator economy and influencers, we really, we really have to expand that to include gaming creators, of which there are now millions. It's taking up lots of our collective attention. UGC accounts for about 40% of US weekly content consumption. Wow. Of that, gaming is about one third and it's growing. The number one reason why we'll continue to grow is the proliferation of generative AI. It's gonna make hmm. a lot of the development that goes on today easier through automation. I just wanna ask you really quick there, is it developers that are building this experience? Is it people like you and I who have a knack for innovation or is it like even younger cohorts who have the tools and the wherewithal to build this kind of stuff? It's all of the above. What's new about the sort of UGC era is that it is those young kids that traditionally were gamers. I think historically, gamers played and developers developed. That's no longer true, or the, the lines are blurred between who is a gamer and developer. I mentioned millions of developers. It's, it's, it's nearly 10 million on Roblox alone. So the net impact is that the gaming industry is, is in, the, in the middle of its internet age reckoning. So whether it's Hollywood or journalism, in this case, gaming, we're seeing this clear delineation where you either, as a user, you pay for something premium, and then maybe you get a higher rate of quality, or you watch ads for something that's free, and that's often unvetted, perhaps vetted by an algorithm. So along the way, there's a lot of tension, there's layoffs, there's consolidation. That's what's starting to happen in 2023 within gaming and what we expect to see going forward in 2024 as, as UGC games continue to grow. So during CES, we saw plenty of startups pitching their services like AI-powered text-to-everything. Now, some of that is going to have potential implications for, for developers, but platforms like Roblox, they're already offering those types of tools. So what was really most interesting to me, N NVIDIA released a demo of its AI-powered non-playable characters, which uses Unreal Engine and generative AI to power natural language conversations between gamers and these sort of automated NPCs. It's very exciting if you're a gamer because nothing gets lampooned more than gaming than these sort of generic repetitive interactions with NPCs, the non-playable characters. Yep. They have a few hand lines, it gets boring and repetitive. So having these sort of custom NPCs where you can have natural language and, and, and more um, interesting and varied conversations is really exciting. Yeah, I used to be a, a traveler, but then I took an arrow to the knee. Like, I think those kinds of lines are going to go by the wayside in the future state with the technologies like NVIDIA. Now that they're going to be able to download and digest the whole game's manual ecosystem, they'll be able to have more spontaneous conversation with their players, which will definitely make for a more engaging experience. It will give everyone that main character energy that they're bringing from the real world back into the gaming environment. I love that we have you here, Tom, specifically to discuss this topic because you've got two kids of your own. You're able to lend a unique insight in this regard. So like, what are the post-pandemic parental priorities when it comes to managing playtime? You know, we're transitioning out of the pandemic and for many people, but especially for families, that was just about getting through the day, often without the benefit of, of childcare. So we bought record numbers of board games and toys, <laughs> we let our kids sit on tablets and TV probably longer than we would have liked. Kids also fell behind academically. Right mm. now, Americans are about a half year behind in math. It's a little better than that in reading, but they're still behind in reading as well. And so now we're sort of re-evaluating what do we want to spend our money on and what are the things we want our kids to pay attention to? And specifically for, for a lot of parents, that means much more emphasis on educational toys. Ah. Parents have this elevated standard for toys. It's a little bit ridiculous potentially, but Three quarters of parents are now wondering, is this toy going to help my kid in the future? <laughs> is it going to help my kid feel good, learn something, or otherwise grow? 
And there's a rush within the industry to get these new acronyms approved so parents can more easily find toys that help with things like social and cognitive development mm. and toy makers can market them as such as well. Now at CES, we didn't see a ton in the way of toys, but what we did see, it did align with the sort of developmental angle. There was a sensory toy designed to help kids with autism. There was a sort of Lego-like toy designed for kids to learn Braille. And we also saw these AI-powered tutors that specialize in subjects like math. However, also during CES, OpenAI announced, uh, independent from the show, that the GP store had launched. And so I do expect those types of hyper-specialized agents like tutors, those will probably be, be satisfied in GPT marketplaces, mm -hmm. whether it's ChatGPTs or someone else's. I love that so many of these new toys and products are being designed with you, Diamond Nia, in mind. And I also want to kind of tip my cap to PlayStation and Sony as well, because not only are we having these instructive toys and more sensory experiences, but accessibility was a trend at CES 2024. In health and wellness space, we saw a connected game with wheelchairs, which kind of mimicked a Peloton form factor. And we also, like I said, Sony had a new accessibility controller that was modular and allowed people that had disabilities to manipulate the form factor to fit their needs specifically. So I think that's there's a lot of really rich stuff to uncover, especially as we consider post-pandemic parental priorities. But moving from parental priorities into digital environments, Tom, is are your kids kind of towing the line between the real and the digital world all the time? Is that an increased thing that we're seeing in the toy space? Toy makers have also noticed that parents are worried about screen time. Mm. There's definitely a rise in these sort of hybrid physical and digital products that can be alternative somewhere in between. Lita Capital has that word you used. It's the convergence of physical and digital fidgetal. And they see the fidgetal market as reaching 216 trillion by the end of the decade. That's probably the biggest number anyone will mention <laughs> in the context of CES. So I think what the takeaway is for brands is that their consumers are going to expect that things that they discover in the digital world will also be available in the physical world and mm. vice versa often with this sort of seamless ability to shift in and out of those spaces. At CES specifically, we didn't see much in the way of traditional toys that are hybrid, but previously in the show, we discussed this sort of decor trend of introducing physical items into the home with digital capabilities that will allow people to express themselves in ways that evolve either with their moods or with trends. The fourth trend that I explored is a bit of a comeback story, Ryan. So a lot of people, they roll their eyes, and I totally understand it when they think about things like smart speakers that are collecting dust in our mm -hmm. basements right now. Ditto when it comes to out-of-home wearable gadgets like the Google Glass you remember from 10 years ago. RIP. And even at-home products like MetaQuest 3, which is, has a little bit more mainstream appeal, but has thus far, it's really just achieved a niche status. What I'm excited about is that starting in 2024 and really for the rest of this decade, some of these same products might start to fulfill the promise that we were told they had, when, and that's due to generative AI. Ooh. So you can imagine a natural language conversation with Alexa where finally you don't have to actually say exactly the right thing to get a decent answer. And at CES, we saw a continuation of that with Rabbit R1. Now, granted, it's a new standalone product, so it <laughs> isn't a failed product from the 2010s, and it's reportedly done quite well with its initial sales. What the R1 does is it lets you use natural language to perform actions that you'd otherwise have to take multiple steps in a phone to perform, just like ordering an Uber, for example. The effect is that it reduces friction, which is what an assistant should do. And I mentioned the R1 in the context of these sort of generative AI makeovers, because in the lab, we can't help but see it as a de facto phone innovation, whereby you can use natural language to perform some actions and reduce friction. 
So Tom, we did a lot of toy talk here and I definitely found a ton of inspiration for my nieces and nephews and even for myself, but I'm curious to know, agnostic of the category, were there any CES favorites as a newbie to the conference? I think we saw that the car dashboard for some OEMs will get a generative AI makeover as well. And not everybody's excited about that, but I am. It's a, I think BMW and Volkswagen, for example, they announced partnerships with Amazon and OpenAI respectively. I'm excited for two reasons. Number one, it's great to see diversity in the dashboard to push Google and Apple as the dominant players. I love CarPlay and 50% of consumers, they won't even consider a car that doesn't have it, but I want Apple to feel the heat. One of the oldest technologies, mirrors date back to 6,000 BC. So BeMind won the innovation award in the smart home category at CES. It's an AI powered smart mirror that can interpret our moods and even chat with us. So you can look into the mirror and it can tell us how much hotter than Snow White we are. Mm -hmm. now, I don't think that necessarily mirrors needed an LLM facelift, but I think this is going to be a year of experimentation where companies try the formula of old product plus AI for just about everything. And then we experiment to see what and what does not benefit from LLMs. Spoken like a true CES first timer. There is so many things to love. He had to give us three. Well, thank you, Tom, for being here. We love your enthusiasm and excitement. And like I said, I'll definitely be looking out for some of those products that you mentioned from the show floor. Thank you, Ryan. So Tom just talked a little bit about how Alexa is being integrated into both BMW and Volkswagen vehicles, and I definitely see the appeal. So I want to welcome back Richard Yao, who can elaborate a little bit further on some of those enhancements that we're seeing to both the in-car entertainment and infotainment systems through generative AI. Richard, you care to uh, expand on the story that unfolded at CES? Yes, of course. So as we said earlier, generative AI is sort of being integrated into cars, so all those different commenters rushing to put a little generative AI magic into the in-car dashboard. And if you think about it, it does make sense, right? Car being the one place where you really need that sort of hands-free voice for experience. And Volkswagen, for example, was one that integrated ChatGPT tag into their dashboard. And then Amazon was there doing a lot of the Amazon auto works, trying to put Alexa into as many cars possible. I believe BMW was one of the major comics they mm -hmm. were working with. But, you know, on the larger scale of car dashboard, it's interesting to see so many car brands trying to, you know, either get on board with CarPlay and Android Auto, trying to use the tech companies in the face, the ones that, you know, the car buyers are already so comfortable with. 50% of potential car buyers won't consider a car that don't support Apple's CarPlay. Wow. So that really tells you what consumers' preference are. Mm. And beyond the dashboard, I just want to like throw the side passenger windows into contention for new media spaces. I think one of the interesting technologies we saw from a multitude of manufacturers was AR enhanced displays for passenger windows. And you could see in an autonomous vehicle in the future, if you're driving by a retail store, they can offer you a discount or entice you to come in, or potentially it can give you additional information about your surrounding environments if you're sightseeing in a new city. So those two things are really transforming the in-car experience for drivers. But I want to take things from, you know, AI, which you were talking about, to another acronym, and that's EV. Was that still a story on the show floor this year? Are we reaching like a saturation point in America, or do we continue to kind of tick along nicely? 
Well, they're definitely on the show floor, but sort of in a less tour, less extended year before, I guess. Mm-hmm. Part of it is the sort of larger industry narrative about how EV sales are slowing down, which is not quite true. They're still growing. They're growing at a slower pace than the year before, mm-hmm. but it is still growing. And part of the slowing is not necessarily like there's less customer demand, but rather more of a manufacturing challenge. We know that the auto worker union has been on strike this fall, so that also caused a, a lot of the big U.S. car maker GM and Ford sort of canceling their CES appearance. Mm-hmm. But the global car maker that did show up, especially the South Korean one, you know, Honda and Kia, and even uh, WinFast from VNN, they all bought their latest EV models. So. I wouldn't say, you know, EV innovation is stalling or anything like that. If anything, last year we saw this industry correlated push towards adopting Tesla's charging standard Mm -hmm. to sort of help build out the charging infrastructure more. We'll always talk about the lack of charging infrastructure as a sort of big adoption hurdle for EV in the U.S., but as the, the infrastructure gets better and better, that become less of a excuse that some of the commenter might use to sort of point to a, a slowing cycle of EV. There's definitely this trend going on with consumers rethinking their priority when it comes to EV. And that gives the newer car brand an opportunity to sort of take over the market and also bring a new sort of infotainment system mm-hmm. that brands will be able to engage customers with. So I want to reintroduce Adam back into this conversation to ask him for his thoughts on mobilities and we didn't get his favorite thing from the CES show floor. So Adam, I want to know, even though Richard was quite comprehensive in his coverage of the mobility landscape, was there anything that we didn't touch on that stood out to you? Yeah, I think a thing that I really enjoyed was it was a concept car, admittedly, not something that is going to ship to consumers, but from Hyundai's R&D department, Mobis was the uh, a Mobion concept that was a car that had the wheels could turn 360 degrees so it mm. can crab walk and move diagonally and basically making it easier to get into tight parking spaces of all shapes and sizes. And the other cool thing that it had were external displays on the vehicle and huh. also projectors on the mirrors to communicate with pedestrians, which I think is, I don't know you know which one or, or either if either of those are the right solution for that, but I think that as we get to more and more autonomy in vehicles that are sometimes driving themselves, communication with pedestrians strikes me as something that could be very important to pedestrian safety. So I think very cool, interesting experiments that we're seeing there from Hyundai. And, you know, I just can't wait for every car on the road to be able to move diagonally or sideways <laughs> as well as as forward. <laughs> it seems like it's been a long time coming for that to trickle down from sort of high-end luxury vehicles into more common everyday vehicles. Yeah, and I love that it has pedestrian awareness and those front-facing screens is definitely something we're seeing more integrated from OEMs. I know we were joking about it. It'd be so nice if you could give someone a smiley face for letting you in, but you can definitely see how that could lead to nefarious actors hacking the system and getting people more than just a thumbs up or a smiley face when they're on the road. But like I said, we will still have to get to our CES favorites from Richard, Adam, and myself. I'll lead it off because it keeps it in the mobility space. Super simple, 
It's from AGC. They're a glass manufacturer. They have something called hydrophobic glass. So you know that when it's like barely raining and you're turning on your windshield wipers, but it's making that awful squeaky noise and isn't actually doing anything. That is exactly what this is for. So if you have a chance, go check out that hydrophobic glass. I pray that it is integrated into many a vehicle soon, not just ones that you see in the CES show floor. But even though that was a simple technology, I wonder, Richard or Adam, do you have something of a similar low fi or is your guys is a little more lofty aspirational of the innovative site mine is definitely uh, a little more aspirational <laughs> my favorite random gadget was the jackery solar mars Ooh. bot which is basically a, uh, a a little autonomous robot that roams around with solar panels to find the optimal place to gather light. It's very cute and also a little dystopian in like imagining a world where you really need power so badly that you have a little robot that is sent out to find it for you. Go fetch me sun, son. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Richard, what about you? You into robots or is there something else that tickled your fancy? I'll go with another robot, Ooh. the Bali home robot <laughs> that sends some ball back. You know, the, the little little ball that rolls around with you. This year they added sort of projection feature to it as a big movie lover. I, I love the idea that my home robot companion is also a like portable projector that just move the screen with me wherever I go. Hopefully five, ten years down the road I'll get like a projector robot that can also, you know, discuss movie with me through Genitive AI, you know, that'll be great. Hopefully he'll be able to notice the cigarette burn so he remembers to change the reels. <laughs> that's a that's a old school cinephile joke there. I, I can't take credit for it. I stole it straight from Inglorious Bastards. So thank you, Tarantino. <laughs> well, anyway, Richard, Adam, thank you. Always a pleasure to have you here. And thank all of you for tuning in to this special CES edition of Floor 9. As ever, you can find us on Twitter at IPG Lab and on Medium under the same name. Until next time, bye bye.